You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Season 5 of the Dramatists Guild Presents Talkback. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. This season is all about how we can challenge the status quo and not only expand the canon of what plays are taught, read, programmed, and used to define the idea of what classics are, but also to ignite it with new, actionable strategies. To me, this is not about canceling the existing canon. It's about being intentional about how we make space for additional, diverse, and inclusive stories, as well as reimagining often produced ones, so that the American landscape of storytelling is truly reflective of the gorgeous tapestry of people that inhabit it. In this episode, Roger Q. Mason talks about the importance of expanding conversations with producers about our work and our visions for experiencing it. I'm so excited to get to talk with you. Roger, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? First of all, it's a great honor to be on this show with you. My name is Roger Q. Mason, and I am a Black and Filipinx writer. I was born in Santa Monica, California. I spend a lot of my time between New York and Los Angeles on this wonderful hustle we call show business. (laughs) This season is all about igniting the canon and coming up with different strategies to accomplish this. And one of the things that we've been discussing is writing outside your lived experience, which really is an ongoing evergreen topic because it keeps changing as we do and as our understanding of of the world around us does. I wanted to talk to you about the fact that Writers from historically excluded communities have often, always, often, always been expected to accept white cisgender majority stories as relevant to us and as, quote unquote, universal. And I'm interested in talking about how many writers from historically excluded communities are now being told we can write only about our own specific cultural experiences, not about any part of the white cisgender majority world in which we still live. So I'd love to know what your thoughts on this are, if you have experiences around this or anything you want to say. Oh, I love it. First of all, this question and this topic is making me think about a experience I had in New Mexico. I was almost 10 years ago now. I was on a writer's retreat through the Middlebury College Breadloaf School of English. And our retreat leader was the great short story writer and poet, Simon Ortiz. And we were writing short stories 
in this retreat, and we had about five or six of them. And I, I, at that time, was finding myself writing a lot about my familial experience and the myth of this family of mine, my dad, whose parents had moved from Texas to Los Angeles in the 1940s, and my mother, who moved to L.A. in 1980. And all of these stories were about that moment for them, when they met, who my dad was before, how that impacted our generation. And Simon took me aside one day after class and said, I noticed that you're writing a lot of autobiographically based work. And I just want to remind you that the imagination encourages us to write about the worlds we don't know. And I said, that's exactly what I'm doing. I, until now, have felt as though I needed to comport myself on the page in a particular way that allowed me to seem literate, intelligent, and in conversation with a well-behaved version of the canon, but at the sacrifice of my own story. And so what I'm doing now by thinking about my own mythos and the origins from which I came is I am writing what I don't know. I'm writing what I have not been allowed to know. I remember early on I would write in these applications to graduate programming that for me my stories started from the simple act of oration before my grandmother and two aunts. I had to memorize as a child Langston Hughes's collected poems of Langston Hughes, and every week we would recite a new one, and I would stand before this tribunal of women and present my version of that particular poem for the week. I started doing that when I was two years old. And I think about all of the things that I learned from that moment about storytelling and about who I am and who I could be. That's my origin. That's what brought me into show business was standing in front of those women and learning elocution. And when I would write my applications from that standpoint, they'd always get rejected. They were not interested in how we in our homes in our lived experience, we're influenced by those environments to create the work that we do. And I, and I believe that has changed a lot in the years in what I call the fight for visibility politics, this sort of moment that we're in now. Our stories and our abilities to preserve those stories hold a certain cultural and aesthetic value and currency now in ways that they didn't when I was first coming up. Now, what they wanted us to be at that time I've suppressed from my brain because it was such a traumatic experience to be rejected in that way year after year and have to find and define oneself in spite of that. How do you keep going as a writer when you're standing in front of an ocean of no? You have to pull from within. You pull from the stories that you that you know, and you find something unfamiliar, something strange or something interesting about them. That is such a, an amazing and interesting response. I want to talk more about your view on this, what you said, fight for visibility politics. Because I do think that fighting for visibility in this sense really does include fighting for how we see ourselves and how we project our own stories, as opposed to expectations from other people often. Right. Right. I think what has been a great aid in the fight for civil rights 
<laughs> has been the the telephone and social media because in a world where we have social media is that we can say things like we see you white american theater and by literally saying we see you we are saying really not only are we seeing you we're calling attention to the ways in which you are disenfranchising us or portraying limited views and visions of us in your programming, and we're asking for accountability. Now, all of a sudden, people get worried about bad press. They don't want to look bad. They want to be on the right side of history, some of them, but some others are brazen enough to continue perpetuating these social ills. But many folks will become shuddered and concerned, and they'll either genuinely change their policies of either programming or how to choose plays, or they will at least perform the outward trappings of inclusion, but not really invest intrinsically in what it means to care, not only peripherally, but truly holistically in the life of an artist. Now, when I think about visibility, I think about the fact that by being out, just look at what has happened in the last 10 to 15 years for queer and trans folks. I never will forget the New York Times article that came out almost 10 years ago about the different genders. I think they had listed at that time over 30 genders that that they could name. And just simply by naming the fact that male and female as a standard-bearing, absolute, finite system of gender identity was false, not only biologically, but also sociologically, historically, culturally false, bringing in other cultures which define gender and gender expression and gender identity differently. We have forced a country and emboldened a world to understand that the world is not black and white. And now we're dealing with the backlash. Now we have states saying, don't say this word. Don't give certain services to this person because if I acknowledge that they exist through the word, then all of a sudden I have to deal with them. I can hide from them. I can deal with my discomfort by brushing them under the rug and saying, just don't say it in the schools suppression of identity and suppression of information as a counterbalance to the power of visibility will not last. Because we, in the various we's that I'm talking about, have always existed, and simply turning a blind eye to us or putting a wool sheet over us for the moment only serves one purpose, which is to make you feel temporarily comfortable in a world that actually is uncomfortable because you allow it to be. And you allow it to be because you live in a reductive and myopic vision of life. So art now has the opportunity, I think, to encourage our imagination our civic imagination. This is the essential reason why we need realistic depictions of the diversity. We need diversity in the stories and the types of stories that we tell because the myths that we tell ourselves are the realities that we enact and embody. Mm -hmm. Think about what happens when you tell a child a fairy tale as a civic Mm -hmm. lesson. From that scene of instruction, that child develops a worldview. 
The simple act of telling and receiving and then repeating a story has a profound effect on the cognitive comprehension system of anybody who encounters that story. Stories are powerful and who you include in them and what you say in them and what roles you allow those people to play in those stories has a direct impact on the civic, legal, medical, political way in which those people are rendered. If you show somebody a stereotype of somebody, they the society will start treating them in that stereotypical way yes, and will yes. create justifications for why it's right. We're still living, we're still living Christine, in an age of the aftermath of the three-fifths doctrine, we have still not truly understood people of color as fully human. Because if Mm -hmm. we did, we wouldn't be suppressing their vote. If we did, we wouldn't be having housing disparities. If we understood black folks as human, we wouldn't be trying to redistrict to figure out what civic amenities we don't have to give them, what kind of clean water we can bypass or just barely give them. These are all aftermaths of a story that we told and then reinforced in law that these individuals are not human. And we have not truly recovered from that story. One of the stories that we in the American theater need to rewrite is that one. Until we truly embody and celebrate the essential and complete humanity of black and brown folks, and then by extension, all of the other marginalized communities that we used black bodies as the civic experiment for how to exploit. We will never be free. Yes, visibility is power, and visibility is essential, and we do see all of the institutions and individuals that run away from telling the true and complete story of the American myth And we will hold them accountable through as many means and for as long as we have to. And we cannot allow little glimpses of progress, little bones thrown at us to feel like they've ended the fight. Freedom is not a destination. It is a road that we have to constantly travel down. We never really get there, but we're always fighting to achieve it. And the minute we rest and the moment we stop is when the other side, whoever that side is or whatever sides, come creeping back in and start eroding from within what little progress we've made. You cannot stop. You cannot relent. And so rest is important because you've got to have enough stamina, spiritual stamina, for the journey. Yes, thank you so much for all of that. I take great comfort in knowing that as storytellers, Mm. we have this power to make change through the tales that we tell of our histories. Yes. And even as uh, there are many who would like to erase those stories or suppress them or try to bury them, we can still write new ones and emerge from that. So thank you so much. And we have to write the same ones again because people like to play like they didn't hear you the first time. Yeah, I'm also fascinated by this this way that some people who 
don't want to hear the story we've told will just keep saying, no, that story isn't relevant to me or it doesn't resound, so I'm not going to put it on my stages and come up with a story that actually I'm more comfortable with. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. You and I have talked a little bit about this, I think you call it this anti-discomfort movement. And I want to ask you about what you think about this, how we can ensure that storytelling doesn't lose that function to provoke thought and inspire action, ask difficult questions. How can we go from the inside out and tr- and address this very real problem that's happening now. We have to encourage people to ask the most dangerous question in the world, why? Once we start critically thinking, what is the mm. first thing that they, they started this by trying to discredit critical race theory? And the reason why is because critical race theory encourages deep and interdisciplinary inquiry It encourages thought. And when you exist in a society that wants people to work nine to four, not nine to five, because they want to keep the one hour off so you're not full time and can't ask for overtime and can't ask for benefits. They want to give you just enough hours so that you feel like you've got a job and then clip off the last one so that they don't have to care for you. If you start having a culture of people that'll ask why, or rebuff that system or question the fact that you're actually disenfranchising them by doing that, you would no longer be able to keep the mill open. The mill would be on fire. So you have to keep people complacent by discouraging them from asking why. What legislators have figured out is that you have to stop inquiry at the most impressionable ages. Their grandchildren, all of these guys sitting here, and yeah, it is these guys sitting there on Capitol Hill are looking at their grandchildren, saying they, them, and watching RuPaul and reading books about integration, and they're getting scared because... If my grandchild starts asking me if this is wrong, that gets to my conscience. And you Mm. see, I've got lobbyists to report to. I've got special interests to maintain. So I think what we need to do is we need from that same tender age to wage our own counter war. Let's take these kids and say, go ahead and ask why. Why? Why? 
Because if you can encourage critical thinking from the formative age where a child starts making meaning in the world and starts socializing themselves, you might have a chance at a better future. Roger, I'd love to talk to you about how we can harness this energy that you have just expressed about empowering people to be curious, to ask why, to tackle all of the questions that people don't want us to ask, not only to imbue our stories with it as we continue to do, but how we talk to theaters around the country about how vital it is that they open their doors to these kinds of stories and this the power of storytellers to make change in this way? Well, first of all, the storyteller themselves has to realize that this is their obligation to the spirits. Yeah. I think about how the ancients, the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Greeks understood that playwriting was a spiritual act and that mm. the ritual of gathering to hear a story is what made the sun follow the moon and the crops to grow and the and the rivers to rise and the silt to be fertile they understood that this incantation known as live performance the communal wish for balance and for community for theatron the seeing place as the greeks talked about it was actually a prayer for community and for wholeness and I'm not saying every writer needs to do this, but I'm, I can only speak to what I know. I reach for the heavens when I write. I'm praying. I'm praying for us in, the, in this realm. I'm praying to those who have come before with gratitude that they traversed this journey before and left a path. And I'm praying for the future. And I'm doing it in a way that harnesses language, time, space, characters, costumes, scenography towards a higher spiritual calling. That is what I know my work is. And again, I'm not saying everybody has to do it, but for those that know that to be their calling too, I'm saying, come on, this is the church. Let's make a holy noise onto each other. I'm, in, I'm trying to embolden those that understand the spirit of the ritual of the theater to be a powerful tool of transformation and soul washing. I'm trying to encourage them to do that. Now, the other thing is when those writers manifest those pieces on the page, they may not be well-made plays. They may not be language and dialogue driven. They may use methods of storytelling that are outside of the normalized dramaturgical lens that theaters use. So we need to be in dialogue. Whenever I get a rejection letter, I ask to receive the notes. You don't get off the hook because you told me no. Let's talk. Because actually, and I tell them this, that helps me understand how to better represent myself and my work. And also, it might help you understand how better to read things that are outside mm -hmm. of your comfort zone. How do you not just look at the blueprint 
as a literary two-dimensional work, but as an invitation for a three-dimensional performance that's going to happen in life before an audience in real time. How do you, in other words, how do you encourage your readers to comprehend a piece through an imaginative lens? How do you help people learn how to dream? That's what you're really asking. How can we re-invite the American theater to learn how to dream? It's one script, one conversation, one I don't know, but let's talk about this. How do you meet people where they are and say, it isn't for me, but this is where I would send you next. Let's really talk to one another. And in that moment, we all will grow because you may learn that you actually did like my script, but you just didn't have the vocabulary to figure out how you could find your way in it. I don't submit plays to people. I invite them to experience the work as it is. I don't send script submissions. I send invitations for creative dialogue. And we have to embolden our members at the Dramatist Guild to understand that we're not submitting. We are engaging in a conversation. And we are blessed, and they are blessed. And because we're talking, we all are blessed because we have the chance to grow. When you come from that generative place, you will change the American theater. And we've got to do it one email at a time until every single relationship comes from a constructive and growth-oriented place. And as long as I'm working and living insane, because I hope this business don't drive me crazy, as long as I have my facilities, Lord help us, I will be holding people accountable and saying, let's talk and let's figure out how and why. And if it's not you, then maybe somebody else. But we need to be dedicated to developing new plays and new ideas. That's how you actually keep doors open. That's how you actually save an industry. By encouraging the young, not just the age-wise young, but young ideas, new ideas. Folks later in life saying, I want to try something different. And knowing that they have safe havens in which to do that. Knowing that these institutions and these companies, storefront and not, are places that can hold and handle and care for and encourage artists. They can be home. That's what we need to foster. The answer to our problems in the American theater is to change I don't care to let me help you. Nonchalance and selfishness and scarcity mentality have no place in my aesthetic ethos. I have no patience for it. There's always enough. Why? Because my imagination is boundless and your ability to understand it is boundless too if you let it be. Thank you so much. That I'm going to wrap us up there because really you have given us so much inspiration and food for thought. Thank you, Roger. Thank you to Roger for joining us. This episode was produced by Amy Von Masick and me, Christine Toy Johnson. Our music was composed by Andrea Daly, recorded at John Marshall Media in New York City. 
Special thanks to Out Loud Audio in New York City and Hyde Street Studios in San Francisco, California. The Dramatist Guild Presents Talkback is a production of the Dramatist Guild of America and distributed by the Broadway Podcast Network. Let us know what you thought about the episode by using hashtag DGTalkback. As always, to be continued. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.